The Institute of Art and Ideas is excited to announce Closer to Truth as an official partner for our upcoming How the Light Gets In Festival at Hey on Why, happening this year, May 24th to 27th. Closer to Truth examines humanity's deepest questions with the world's greatest thinkers, from Nobel laureates and renowned scientists to theologians and best-selling authors. For 20 years, Closer to Truth has explored the deep questions of cosmos, consciousness, and meaning. This year, host Robert Lawrence Kuhn journeys to new depths with their philosophy of biology season, exploring topics like evolution, race, alien intelligences, sex and gender, and much more. Get early access to full episodes from this brand new season by registering for a free membership at their website, closertotruth.com. Discover the fundamental issues of existence, engage new and diverse ways of thinking, and seek out your own answers with Closer to Truth. I think it is important for human beings that there are certain circumstances where they go against the consequences and they know they're going against the consequences. In this world, there still are really important decisions that need to be made with a consequentialist perspective. I think before we even get to the consequentialism, we have to look very closely at how we make our decisions. I want to pitch in to the discussion now and ask you, how do we decide what's the right thing to do? There's a compelling case that when we are making moral decisions, we shouldn't just regard ourselves as done because we've sacrificed something. What matters is that the sacrifice also actually helps others and helps the world. And I think there's almost a way of going about charity, which is sort of like a, a sacrificial offering. I, I'm burning this money and doing it to demonstrate what a good person I am. And I think that's, that's not enough. We that it's going to something that is going to make a, a real practical difference in the world. Because we do live in a world where there is desperate suffering and where there are things that we can do about it. So we just, we know the intervention in order to cure people of parasitic infections that still happen all over the world. We sort of, we know exactly what to do, how to deliver it and where to send the right medicines. And they don't get delivered. And this is something that I think would just be solved if a fraction of people who give to charity thought really hard about what the outcomes of their charity were going to be. So, d David, do you, do you disagree with that, that there's, there's a connection between the action and the, the concept? It has to be efficacious as well as moral. Yeah. I, I very much agree that if you have a clear objective, like reducing the suffering in a certain part of the world, and you have specific means to do it, you can think fairly clearly about what would be the most effective means. But these decisions all occur in a broader context. For instance, I have to decide how much of my money I'm going to allocate to giving my children nice Christmas presents 
as opposed to giving money to the, the, the flood in Bangladesh, right? And I don't think there's a formula for making that sort of decision, because what you're doing is you're trying to weigh quite different kinds of consideration there, the, the fortunes of strangers against the, your loyalty to your kids, right? And there's lots of other stuff that may be in play here. And I think, you know, the, the precision can only be achieved if you artificially restrict the range of considerations that's relevant. And it's like deciding who to marry. There's lots of stuff that's relevant. And you can say you really ought to think about whether this is a good person to have children with, whether this is a person you want to stay, live with after retirement. There's all this stuff, and you can point this out to people. But weighing this stuff against one another, there's no formula for that. There are lots of things that we do weigh for which there isn't necessarily a formula. You can work out, you know, it costs 2,000 pounds-ish to save a life through malaria bed net distribution. Um, I might not know precisely how much I value family over someone in Africa, but if I think about what I would spend those 2,000 pounds on if I were helping them versus saving a life, you can at least start to internally reflect on whether that does reflect your values. Yes. I'd like to go back to the question of charities because a lot of charitable giving these days, perfectly benevolent and maybe even effective charitable giving, is taking place in an absence of an analysis of people's rights. Because um, I work on human rights and I believe that people are entitled to clean water, for instance, because parasitic diseases are not only solved by giving people medicine, but giving people access to clean drinking water. It seems a simple thing, but vast amounts of the world don't have access to clean drinking water. So the context in which we're giving charity often, by we I'm talking about people in the West, is a context in which rights are being withdrawn from the people who need the rights in order to access health. The health systems are being destroyed. Quite often charities are coming in with huge amounts of money and quite often people working in the health, the public health systems get drawn into much higher jobs in charities. And so the general clinic, which actually guarantees public health, which is never very good in the first place, but is actually being destroyed by the actions of perfectly well-meaning charities that are sucking up the personnel. There's a larger context to this, and it is the context not just of benevolence, but of rights and, and, and of people being able to access their rights. Okay, you've linked us very nicely to the next phase I want to go on to, which is to ask whether consequences are a, a poor guide to moral action. So if you take a conflict like the Iraq war, the, it strikes me that the judgment, which is it cast in moral terms that people make of that conflict now, is consequentialist, which is to say it has been a disaster whose consequences are still unfolding. Well, there were a number of moral cases in play, as people may remember. One was the case of restricting Saddam Hussein from acquiring and using, or, or it was thought that he had acquired weapons of mass destruction and was capable of using them at very short notice. You may remember the 45-minute claim, which was um, Andrew Gilligan then made, uh, a journalist then working for the BBC. Uh, he nearly brought the entire BBC structure down because he claimed that Blair knew, and it was claimed that Blair didn't know. And, and of course, we know now that, that governments manage these things by not knowing, strategically not knowing. Uh, things that you think they should have known and ought to have known and that their advisors knew. There were people like my friend Nick Cohen who said this is about the overthrow of a dictator who has launched genocidal war against his own people. And he had indeed done that. But he wasn't doing it at that moment. I mean, the people whom there had been a genocidal war against, the Kurds, by then were protected is, by... Is that the moral rule? Is that the moral rule that if you, if you got away with it, 
with the genocide, then it's over. And I you, think and that's fine. the case for humanitarian intervention is that the need for it has to be there at that time. I mean, we're saying this, we're seeing the consequences if we jump to consequences playing out in Syria, where because Iraq was a disaster, we mustn't do anything in Syria. So you, you have a huge refugee crisis, vast numbers of people being killed. One of the reasons that there has been a reluctance to intervene is precisely the reading of what happened in Iraq. David, can I bring you in? Because your, your general position is that we, we need to go prior to the consequences to judge the moral worth of an action. And let, let's take this example where, you know, the, lead you in one direction too, but how would you make a moral assessment of that of that series of events? Well, that's very hard to do. As I was saying, I don't think there's a rule or a formula. It's a, ma it's, yeah, it's a terrible phrase. It's a matter of judgment. To pick up on Gita's point, she's quite right that often the consequences of the action I will take are determined by the perhaps unjust and unfair structures that are in place, the social structures that are in place. So if I accept that as a fait accompli, if I accept uh, the fact that this dictator has invaded this country as a fait accompli, the best thing to do may be to, to, to maneuver around that. But it may also be that what I ought to do is not to accept it because it's unjust or unfair, try to change the system. And that may or may not produce the best consequences, but it may produce the more fair or just outcome. And now we have the very hard task of weighing the value of justice and fairness against the, the misery and uh, disruption that we're risking by actually attacking the system rather than just accepting the system as a fait accompli and working within it. Um, so that's a, a, a dilemma which confronts Sebastian. If, I if you look at... Um uh, Thomas Aquinas's yeah. um, case for the just war, all the way through to Tony Blair's Chicago speech, which is essentially a, an updated version of Aquinas. Yeah. All of those accounts have some consequences sure. in them. They all say yeah. uh, that the for an action to be just, it also has to be practicable. There has to be some reasonable expectation that what you want to to achieve. And you could argue from a consequentialist point of view, that the real serious case against that intervention was that that practical case was absolutely ignored. Right. That there was no prospect of a, of a reasonable outcome. Right. That there's a perfectly reasonable case. Everybody thought there were weapons of mass destruction. There was nobody who didn't think that. Yes. You, could, you could say that's a reasonable case. But the practical consequentialist case was really difficult to. But you, yes. you can't go there, can you? Well, I think, that to be fair to Aquinas and so on, that that, that tradition is about the use of violence in particular. And I think the doctrine is, the Catholic doctrine is, that you, you're going to use force or violence. There's got to be some good that's going to come out of it or likely to come out of it. But the, I don't think they generalize that and say, with any action, you can only do it if some good is likely to come out of it. On the, on the contrary, they often say, you may not kill an innocent person, even though the world will end if you do so. Right? So they're, they're quite absolutist. Especially, I'm, I'm interested in, in, because what we're describing in these instances are, radical uncertainty about the future. So how moral action in the presence of total uncertainty about the consequences, if the consequences are also part of the judgment of your action? So you've raised two things there. One is sort of how do you make the decision under uncertainty? And then I think this really feedback effect, which is when you know that the way you make a decision affects what the decision's value ends up being, how do you do that process? It becomes, you know, very complicated. I think the, the honest answer is with difficulty. So the thing that I respect most in any politician is the ability to say, I don't know what the right thing to do is here, but we need to act. And I think this is the best option given the information I have now.
I admire even more is if they get new information and then say, ah, in light of this new information, my view of what the best thing to do is now different. I think that we do live in a complex world where it is very, very challenging to see the future. And we need to be honest with ourselves about that and humble about our ability to process that information. Having said that, I think we can often use the difficulty of working out processes as an excuse not to try. And I think this different places. It can happen in sort of trying to weigh up things that are clearly impossible to compare with the formula, but which are also clearly comparable, right? There are lots of things that I can't compare with a formula, which I can compare. Do you want to get Indian takeaway or pizza? There's no formula for answering this question, but I can still make a judgment. So saying that something is a judgment decision doesn't mean that there's not a, a real decision that can happen here. And in the same kind of way, you know, I don't know what the outcome is going to be of this education intervention. I don't know what the outcome is going to be of this health intervention. I can look at the options and I can make the best judgment given, you know, properly affected populations, given all of the things that one might want to get the best possible judgment and have a stab and make a decision. I think the important thing is you can't not make decisions. There is no area of life where you can just a decision entirely because not making a decision is a form of decision. If we rejected consequences as a as a guide to moral action, what would the world look like? Would it be would it be better? <laughs> well, and, um, I don't think any of us would propose simply not considering the consequences, but I, I think it is important for human beings that there are certain circumstances where they go against the consequences and they know they're going against. So these are not situations of uncertainty. There was this situation where Franz Kafka was dying and his friend Max Brod, he made, a, he made Max Brod promise to burn all his manuscripts, okay? And Max Brod probably knew this was a terrible thing to do because the, everyone would be made happy by the manuscripts, reading them and, uh, well, not happy, but uh, illuminated, <laughs> you know. <laughs> and uh, new interpretation of Kafka. I know, quite, yes. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not a literary man. Um, and and uh, Franz Kafka would be dreadfully famous, so everyone would benefit from this. Still, it would have made sense for him, out of loyalty to his promise, out of loyalty to his friends, to burn the manuscripts, right? Even though he knew the consequences were all on the other side. And I think it's important in human life to have that idea of a bond of loyalty or truthfulness or promising, which can, in certain circumstances, transcend the known consequences of an action. And if we didn't have that, human life would be much more instrumental and much... So do you think it, was it would have been morally wrong for him in that circumstance to have to have gone against Kafka's wishes and to have thought the greater good here is in um, distribution of these manuscripts and the, the, the contribution to literary history which outweighs the promise of my now deceased friend. I think Franz Kafka would have thought that he should not have published those manuscripts and I think that makes perfect sense, that thought, um, out of loyalty to Franz Kafka. Mm. Yeah. Can you think of any examples of, of things where you would demand to, of someone that it's the right thing to do, even though they know the consequences will be detrimental. Well, that's one. Uh, another, another thing is, you know, if, if some author comes up to me and asks me what they, I think of their book, and I know the book is awful, you know, uh, everyone will be happier if uh, my career will flourish, if I lie, and that they'll be happier and no, no benefit from telling the truth. But it makes sense to uh, at least try to um, avoid the question. <laughs> so, you know. Sebastian, do, do you... Do you dissent from that? I mean, that seems fairly reasonable. There are moments where we actually just follow a moral imperative. Right. So I think it's worth remembering that the sort of that we're talking about there, where there are these really small disagreements, um, 
probably don't matter that much in the great scheme of things. And there are actually relatively few situations in which consequentialists and deontologists practically disagree about what went on. And to a certain extent, these are debates about the, the extreme situations, things like war where the intuitions might come apart quite a lot. But I, I actually also don't disagree in a very important sense in that I think you can build into your consequentialist theory very easily and very sort of intuitively by just saying, look, yes, in this one instant, you might be optimizing happiness or well-being by, you know, breaking In general, society is much better off if people go about not breaking their words and if people are in the habit of not breaking their words. And I think it is right to reward people for being honest and for keeping their words and for showing loyalty. That produces the greatest welfare for people in the long run. Let's just end with one one thought. Um, I'm, I'm intrigued by Syria, for example, where we've got a very different uh, moral question, a choice of inaction. We decided to, to stay out of, of this conflict. Now, one of the problems it raises for you, Sebastian, is, well, what are the consequences of inaction? It's very hard to, to know. And how do we judge that as a choice? I can understand it's a political choice that in the shadow of previous interventions, it, there was no question. Uh, of it ever being practical, but as a moral question, how do we how do we judge it? Let's come to you. There is a, a big difference between not doing something and doing something, sending poisoned food and simply not sending any po- any food at all. So I I mean I was very much in favour of President Obama's decision not to to bomb Syria, and I think failing to help someone is a very different thing from killing them, even if the consequence may be the same. So, uh, yeah, so I think one has much more freedom. Even if you know them. they're going to be killed by that's somebody right. else. That's right, yeah. That's, uh, that's someone else. That's the fait accompli thing. If some unjust people are going to do unjust things, you're not responsible for so that directly. So if, for the sake of argument, you have the capacity to prevent something, yes. a slaughter, yes. and you don't do so, I, yes. I can see that's quite different from an act of commission. That's right, yeah. But nevertheless, that's still a moral it, failure. It is, but that when intervening will actually involve morally problematic things itself. Which it always will. Which it always so will. So this is quietism. This always leads to nothing. Well, it, it leads to a complicated process of weighing, again, between the, the, between the moral cost of intervention and the moral benefits of intervention. But it's not all the same whether you're doing nothing or actively killing someone. I'm not sure it's fair to say that we decided we didn't invade Syria, but the British government is engaged militarily in Syria, um, and so is the US. So I, we did decide to take action there. I think that probably, it, it's hard to know if this is a good decision or not a good decision. We'll support different types of engagement depending on whether they actually produce good results. And I think there's really good evidence that going to war and being militarily engaged in societies you don't understand very well in very complex goes very badly. Um, so I think there is a strong There's also evidence case. it goes quite well. It depends where you're talking about. So therefore, you can only judge it later then. At the time of acting, when you want to know, is this a moral action, you've got nothing to go on. So was that a moral intervention or not? Well, it went well, so therefore, according to you, it perhaps was subsequently. But how would sort you know at the time? And on the time you look at, I mean, the evidence is that your average military intervention doesn't go particularly well and increases the well, again, that's nothing. That's quietism. The that's that's um, the end of the Second this World one, War, it isn't is. it? On this issue, it might be quietism. It might be completely different. So a consequentialist who really lived by their values um, might say, I should give almost every penny I earn 
to fund campaigning on some issue if there's evidence that that campaigning is likely to work. I don't think that itself is an intrinsically quietistic one. It's just quietistic when taking action wouldn't help and very active, far more active than most non-consequentialist theories would be when it does help. But there's a more general issue here, which is where do we start in moral philosophy? Where do, what do we start from? And we start from uh, just our ordinary opinions about what matters, and our ordinary opinions are happiness and pleasure matters. That's why consequentialism is often so important, and consequences matter. But we also think ordinarily that other things matter, and loyalty and honesty and truthfulness. And that's where we start from, and also the distinction between acts and omissions. Um, so I don't have an argument for why we should start there any more than perhaps Sebastian has an argument for why we should value pleasure and happiness. Uh, we've got to start with where we are and try to work out the best story about how this all hangs together. And that's, I'm afraid, where we're going to end.